0: Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the ethical ideals and the practical realities of charity in Islam. Charity is one of the great concerns of the Quran. In the Muslim scripture, charity is described in two different forms. One using the word zakah, sometimes pronounced zakat, a word meaning to purify. It's mentioned 32 times in the Quran, often together with the injunction to pray, with the idea that charity is so fundamental to Islam that it is seen as the companion of prayer. Another form of charity is expressed through the term sadaqah, mentioned 24 times in the Quran. Its word means literally righteousness or even justice and refers to a more voluntary and expansive form of charity. One verse of the Quran runs, Those who believe and do deeds of righteousness and establish regular prayers and give regular charity will have their reward with their Lord. On them shall be no fear, nor shall they grieve. Well, throughout the next hour, we'll be looking at how these ideals translated into practice and how laws and institutions were founded to protect and promote such charitable gifts and revenues over a period of 14 centuries. We'll be focusing especially on the Middle East and particularly in the medieval period. But we'll also be looking at how those ideals and practicalities of charity have been transformed more recently in the modern era. Joining me today and leading us in our exploration of charity in its various forms in Islam is Professor Adam Sabra. He holds the King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud Chair in Islamic Studies in the Department of History at UC Santa Barbara. His books include Poverty and Charity in Medieval Islam, Mamluk Egypt 1250-1517, to 1517, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2000. And welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank
1: you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, today we're going to be talking about charity, its history and its impact over the 14 centuries of Islamic history. Now, charity, of course, is part of all of the world's religious traditions, but it's especially developed or prominent or formalized in Islam. The the main term for charity, zakat, appears no fewer than 32 times in the Quran. And zakat is also one of the five pillars of Sunni Islam. More of that later. And from the early period of Islam in the 7th century on to the present day, the practical and legal, as well as moral and spiritual aspects of charity have been interpreted in many different ways, from a means of purifying the, the soul of the giver of charity to providing revenues in more recent decades to Islamic states. But before we move on to our longer-term survey, and we're going to focus especially on the medieval centuries today, I think. Let me start off our conversation by asking you from the beginning and in outline, why is charity so important
1: in Islam? That's an excellent question. Um, As you pointed out, charity is one of, or specifically zakat, uh, which is a tax uh, uh, outlined in the Quran and developed in in the Sunnah, in in the uh, example of the Prophet and through Islamic law. Uh, which benefits the uh, the poor and other figures in, needy uh, figures in the Muslim community, uh, is was one of the five pillars of Islam. It's there. It's a major thing in the Quran. It's a major point in the Quran, um, alongside the idea of zakah, which is a more broad idea of alms giving or charity. But zakah is specifically used in the sense of an obligatory uh, amount of alms to be paid by wealthy Muslims to those who are less fortunate. And broadly speaking the Islamic legal tradition tends to divide um, Muslim community into two groups, those who pay zakat and those who who receive it. Uh, And so in that sense, it it serves a number of different functions. It's a kind of social uh, glue that holds together society where people have different amounts of wealth. Uh, It provides social services uh, or has provided social services to people who are poor, uh, to travelers, uh, for the liberation of slaves, uh, to, to orphans and widows, to a whole uh, range of groups uh, who might be regarded as, as needy. Uh, and so it's an, it's an important part of Islamic faith in practice, uh, but it also has social functions that are, are very important for the community as, as a whole. Uh, in its origins, the term zakat basically means purification. Um, I think I think you mentioned, and that suggests that by paying Zakat in a sense, one validates or one legitimizes the rest of one's wealth. Uh, And so by paying this portion, which differs depending on whether one's talking about uh, uh, coins in the pre-modern period today, I suppose we have a bank account, but uh, in those days, uh, currency, uh, herd animals, uh, grains, uh, other forms of wealth, uh, that one that pays a percentage of this uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and so this was the foundation really, I think of Islamic ideas about charity, but it doesn't actually even begin to exhaust the kinds of charity because sadaqah is much broader than that. So people gave alms and continue to give alms in, in, in Muslim societies on a whole series of occasions. And today, for example, we're in Ramadan and Ramadan is an important occasion for the giving of charity for many people, on a daily basis, uh, you know, for example, if you if you were to so be in Egypt today, you would find people stopping by the side of the road, taking out food they've prepared and giving it to people who are uh, either homeless or impoverished, who either whom they know or whom they encounter even just by chance. So uh, charity is an important part of the Ramadan fast. And making sure that other people can enjoy uh, the, the the fast. is important and always has been. The same thing is true for all the other major holidays of the Islamic religious calendar. So for example, on the Eid al-Adha, on on the Feast of the Sacrifice, uh, in which um, Muslims generally will consume, if they can afford it, uh, lamb, they sacrifice a lamb and consume it. If they can't afford that, there's some other kind of meat, perhaps chicken, whatever it might be. Uh, Generally speaking, most people give away a significant part of of the meat from the animal that they've sacrificed. Uh, to poor neighbors or to uh, other institutions that will then redistribute these kinds of uh, food amongst amongst those who are needy. So charity from the very beginning of Islam down to today is a sort of fundamental pillar of Islam. And it's one that has both religious and also uh, social importance. Well, that's very helpful, Adam, and and I suppose I
0: should clarify for listeners a few of the different terms that we're using here on that because they can Sorry. be <laughs> a bit, a bit, a bit tricky. I mean, I spoke of zakat as the, the formal, let's say, the Quranic version of, of, of charity, that word, as you mentioned, from the Arabic verb to, 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 to make something pure, to purify. Um, you're using, I suppose, the, the, the Arabic pronunciation zakat, which, of course, in compound form becomes zakat. So we have this word, zakat, zakat, the Quranic. Um, and indeed one of the five pillars but you also mentioned that form of of voluntary charity then sadaka. so uh, let's say in the latin alphabet at least with an s rather than a z isn't it so the Mm -hmm. the formal obligatory charity then zakat or zakat and the voluntary additional supernumerary charity i suppose we might say sadaka. and and perhaps listeners who know something of judaism will recognize perhaps the the hebrew word of sadaka, which is which is etymologically linked, isn't it? Certainly to the to the voluntary arms giving uh, term. I suppose that's another word we might be using, I suppose, arms giving. I should clarify that's with the arms with an L, isn't it? I suppose as well. The sort of the English has its own uh, tricky pronunciations too. Yeah. So so zakat and zakat, it often comes up then in the in, in the Quran, doesn't it, as as in context as being together with prayer, one of the other five pillars of Sunni Islam, that the word salah or salat, so this idea of of, of, of Zakat, of, of, of charity, as being the companion of prayer, then, as being really that, that fundamental and central uh, a part to, to being, being Muslim. So we've got, so far, then, I think we're starting to sketch out this sense that this is really important. This is a really important idea. It's a really important practice. Uh, and as you've already hinted, as well, that, that it, it, it comes up in various different contexts, particularly through Ramadan. You've mentioned that it can be giving away of perhaps of of, of sheep or or lamb meat, mutton or or, or lamb, part of the the commemoration of the sacrifice of of Ibrahim, Abraham at at the Eid festival at the end of of the Hajj. It can be in cash. It can be in presumably electronic currency nowadays. We'll perhaps get to that much later in our conversation if we get there at all. Or it can be in, in crops or kind or various different forms. So this is suggesting to me and I'm sure many of our readers that this is starting to get a little bit more, more complex and perhaps requiring some kind of formalization, which is a word I guess I used in my introduction, didn't I? The, the idea that the that, that, that charities, zakat, as well as the voluntary charities, sadaqa, is formalized in Islam too. So I suppose in my next question then I should ask you then... How did these these ideas or practices of of uh, formal charity, zakah and informal in voluntary charities hadakah? How did these ideas uh, regarding charity develop into into laws and perhaps more formalized uh, methods or more complex practices of, of, of charity from the early Islamic period to let's say the the high Middle Ages? <laughs>
1: Well, of course, uh, in in the prophet's lifetime, people would have been responding to the prophet's own example, um, which was codified, eventually was, initially it was in a oral form, and then eventually codified in a written form, um, what we call the Sunnah or example of the prophet, um, which is made of of course of hadiths, of narrations of what the prophet is supposed to have said and done. Uh, And between the eighth and early ninth century, these uh, collections of hadiths work were were codified and that gives us kind of a sense of what uh, how the prophet's example is understood by Muslims across the spectrum. In the same period, of course, we also have the codification or beginning of the codification of Islamic law uh, and uh, the ways in which Muslim jurists took these texts as well as the, the practical examples they saw around them and attempted to produce a kind of system of law around that. And here, of course, there are multiple different schools and this is perhaps more detail than we want to go into, but uh, the, the bottom line is that it's through these uh, these sort of legal texts and through the codification of these texts uh, that the Quran was interpreted and the, the way in which people would engage in charity as well as other activities uh, was, was codified. So, for example, people debated about Quranic terminology. The Quran used two words for poor people. Um, faqir which really means someone who's needy, and miskin, a term which... Uh, often is interpreted to mean someone who is completely uh, penniless or indigent, uh, but it's often used, particularly in colloquial Arabic these days to mean simply a poor person, in the sense of, you know, that poor fellow, that poor woman, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, you hear someone gets ill, for example, you know, miskeen, poor guy. Um, but the jurists debated whether this meant someone who is completely without any kind of material wealth, or someone who had a certain amount uh, of wealth. They then began to define what was the minimum amount Uh, that one had to possess in order to be obliged to pay zakat. And if you were below that amount, that meant you were a legitimate recipient. If you were above, depending on how much you were above, you then had an obligation to pay. Uh, And this is an annual amount. Now, in some places and times, uh, Muslim states collected zakat formally. They had zakat collectors, particularly where herds were concerned. When dealing with tribal groups, they would go, they would count the herd and say, okay, you owe a certain percentage, certain number of camels, certain number of horses, certain number of sheep or goats uh, out of your herd as zakat, which is then paid uh, through a government tax collector and then redistributed. But as time went on, and particularly as I think as most Muslims were not engaged necessarily in herding, perhaps the earliest Arabs that might have been true of, and perhaps not even then, but Uh, as most Muslims became people who were, say, merchants, shopkeepers, farmers, uh, it often became the case that individuals were responsible for paying their own zakat. And this is still true, actually, in in most Muslim countries, although states often provide uh, committees or other organizations to redistribute zakat payments. To a large degree, it it was, and often still is the case, that it's a matter of conscience. Now, this doesn't mean it didn't take place indeed it, as i think we've discussed zakat was a fundamental uh, one of the five pillars a fundamental aspect of islam uh some jurors would go so far as to say that failure to pay it over the long run implies a kind of unbelief that you've you've in a sense ceased to be a muslim if you fail to do this the same way if you fail to pray you know not perhaps missing a prayer but in the long run if you never pray if you never fast if you never perform any of the sort of ritual uh, or religious obligations on Muslim, then at some point you really aren't a Muslim anymore. Uh, so people take it very seriously. I think i have always taken very seriously the obligation to pay zakat. Uh, and of course, poor people know this as well. And we have sources from the middle ages that talk about how in Muharram, the first month of the Islamic calendar, when uh, people often try would pay their zakat as a way of kind of clearing their responsibility for the year, that beggars would approach people they saw as being wealthy uh, on the expectation that these people are looking to, they're looking to make, to give alms, (laughs) right? So this is an opportunity to in fact collect. Um, and I, I honestly had that experience also in Egypt, both during Ramadan, uh, uh, and also the beginning of the year that people will know that, you know, because people also at the end of Ramadan, one of the, one of the requirements, in fact, for wealthy people is to pay zakat al-fitr, which is the zakat, which is due on the, at the end of the, of the, of the fasting in the beginning, then, of, uh, the fitr is the, uh, uh fast breaking. So... They know you're going to do this. They know that you have this obligation and they approach you. And this of course leads to many discussions in the medieval literature about the validity or invalidity of begging, and you know, when it's appropriate to beg and in what way. And the consequences also, and the moral obligations of people with property or approached by beggars. Are you obliged to give to them under what circumstances? Uh, what sort of people are most deserving? Uh, and this then generates a whole literature both about about begging and, and its ethics and its conduct, uh, but also about the question of whether being poor is in fact a virtuous thing. You know, are the poor special in God's eyes, or are they people who are simply deprived of material wealth and therefore people for whom one perhaps should feel sympathy uh, and try to assist, but who enjoy no particular spiritual status? And this conversation obviously parallels uh, a similar conversations that took place in uh, in Christianity in, in the Middle Ages um and that was in fact what initially brought me in part to the topic because i was aware of the literature on medieval europe that the poor had a special uh place in often in the religious literature and that poverty often was associated with a kind of virtue and i wanted to find out whether there was something similar going on in islam and the answer is that while muslim thinkers don't always agree about this that many of them do take the view that the view that virtue is a kind that sorry that poverty is a kind of virtue provided its practice in a certain sort of way. And a lot of my work actually has been to sort of develop that idea and to examine how the medieval authors saw those questions. So we're getting a sense out of them then
0: that, that
1: there is then these figures you call
0: the, the, the jurists, the, the, the ulama as one might call them, the, 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 the learned interpreters and the formalizers, the creators in a sense the interpreters and the creators of, of Islamic law, uh, among other figures, no you know that Sufis as well, having these discussions about uh the value of poverty and indeed the the practical dimensions of of who pays uh zakat who pays formal obligatory charity how much they pay often a figure that's quote tends to be quoted is two and a half percent but no doubt there's a great deal of discussion about that too um who pays it and indeed who, who receives it um and of course also you mentioned the role of the state and um of course this brings in the question of 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 is zakat a kind of tax or is tax a different kind of thing that the state, um, the state takes care of? And perhaps you can fill us in a little bit about that too. But what I particularly wanted to raise was, was this development of something called waqf, in English, W-A-Q-F, waqf, the Islamic law of endowments. And waqf is a, an interesting uh uh, development, because it's the formalization of charity in, in legal terms or certain type of charity. But unlike zakat, it's not mentioned. The word doesn't come up in the Quran, as I understand it. And, and it only sort of is only mentioned even indirectly in Hadith and often by this alternative term, Hubus, uh, in, in in Hadith. But nonetheless, from the second and third Islamic centuries, so from the, um, what the kind of the, the seventh, eighth, ninth century, um, this idea of waqf of endowments then formalized investment of charity, I suppose, does develop as a, as a very important and longstanding aspect of Islamic law. So perhaps you can explain to us briefly, perhaps, how, how um, zakat does or doesn't relate to taxation, let's say, and, and particularly the development of this law of
1: waqf endowments. Yeah, so uh, z- zakat... Uh... Can be regarded as a tax in the sense that there are, there are times and places where it is collected by the government. So, for example, under the Ayyubids, the Ayyubids, uh, this is a dynasty that ruled in Egypt, Syria, and what well, is today the western part of Saudi Arabia, the Hejaz containing Mecca and Medina. Uh, and they were the descendants of Salahuddin, better known in the West as Saladin, a 12th century ruler who established this, this dynasty. Uh, and they followed a policy of trying to uh, collect zakat systematically. There were zakat collectors, they visited shops, they visited rural areas. They often collected uh, zakat from merchants, Muslim merchants. So while foreign merchants had to pay customs taxes, Muslim merchants when they entered uh, Ayyubid territory and generally when they entered a city uh, would be asked to pay zakat on uh, their trade goods. So we have in this case clearly a a sense of tax and an obligation of the government to redistribute the revenues to the appropriate uh, recipients. In the 13th and the 14th century under the the Ayyubid successors, the Mamluks, who were a group of uh, military slaves who initially served under the the Ayyubids and eventually created a kind of non-dynastic system of government uh, in their own right that lasted until the 16th century. Under their rule, uh, they tended to shift away from this idea of state collection of, of zakat. And so it largely was a matter of private individuals paying zakat for themselves. They may have still collected it from, I think, from tribal groups, and there may be some cases we can find of limited collection of, uh, of zakat. But for the most part, most Muslims were simply left to their own devices to decide uh, how much to pay and whom to, to pay it to. Uh, And this is, of course, a phenomenon which still exists today. There are some countries uh, where paying zakat is largely a private matter. Uh, There may be various organizations that receive zakat. So today, you can pay zakat to your mosque, for example. Um, generally, you need to derm der- zakat committees that are organized uh, around mosques uh, because they can identify then who the poor are without having to, those poor people having to directly go and ask a wealthy person for alms. It produces a sense of, I think, of humiliation that comes with that um, and makes it easier for those with, with wealth to distribute alms without having to become involved in the daily affairs of other people. Um, other countries, I know that in Pakistan, there has been an attempt to collect uh, Zakat and to redistribute it as a sort of state-run fund with think, mixed success, uh, mixed results. Uh, but this, this question of whether Zakat is a tax or whether it really it is more of a, uh, an obligation between the believer and God, which fundamentally I think is how most um, medieval Muslim theologians saw it. Someone like Ghazali, for example, you know, the very influential uh, 11th century uh, Muslim uh, writer who wrote, you know, a great book The Revival of the Sciences with elements of law, theology, Sufism, um, and so on. And you know, for him, this was largely a question of one's own ethical uh, being and one's relationship with God, with society. It was not. It was not really a question of the state. Uh, and that view, I think, is, is probably the predominant one, but not the only one.
0: That's very interesting, isn't it? Because it gives us a, you know, when we start delving as we are into the practicalities of of, of charity, it raises these, again, these these practical trade-offs, I suppose one might say, using economic language, as many 20th century kind of Muslim thinkers on on, on charity uh, have done, which are the, the issue of administrative overheads. Because even in the 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 eight Quranic classes of who Zakat can go to, who charity can go to, one of them is actually the collectors of Zakat. So on the one hand, there's the question of how much Zakat is, is, how much of the charity is actually taken up in the administrative thing. Of course, an, an issue that faces all 21st century charities as well. But of course, yeah. on the other hand, that raises the issue of, of corruption, or at least of claims of corruption there, as well as actually the, the actual loss of, I suppose, working time or indeed state revenues that might be gone for state officials to be doing this when they might be doing other things so all of these kind of many practical as well as of course the ethical issues whether corruption or whether this actually avoids the obligatory quality of the state doing it presumably with some element of force or retribution kind of uh, negates the the voluntary or or let's say the, the purifying aspect of someone doing it through their own their own conscience, of course. So these are, you know, kind of issues in the 21st century as they were in the medieval period, as you've mentioned with great figures like Ghazali who who were very much aware of these practical as well as ethical and spiritual dimensions. But we also mentioned this issue of waqf then as, as one of the legal mechanisms then of, of, uh, of, of uh, creating endowments, what waqf means, the law of endowments then, which would Institutionalise and I suppose invest uh, charity for the long term. So perhaps you can tell us how these laws of of WACF
1: developed and what their implications were. So waqf is a system uh, whereby a donor gives property, ideally property uh, which is uh, real estate uh, or generates will generate revenue in principle forever, because the idea of a waqf is that it's a donation which establishes either a foundation or a trust that will last according to the walk uh, deeds until the the day of judgment, until God inherits the earth. Now, of course, walks tended to come and go like any other sort of foundation. Some of them were more long lasting than others. Uh, They to some degree, they were dependent on the status of the founder and the ability of or willingness of subsequent rulers to uphold the sacrality of, of walk. But in principle, these were gifts Whereby you uh, surrendered control over property, uh, and that, that revenue, the revenue that was generated by that property, would then be used to support a function which could be anything from a family trust to something which we might more properly call charity, such as providing for education, providing uh, for a place for people to engage in religious devotion, such as a Sufi institution, um, providing Uh, medical care, uh, providing food, water. Walks were also established for various kinds of public facilities, including things uh, like bridges, wells, a very wide range of, of things. So in its earliest function, walk probably was used primarily on a relatively small scale. So we have lots of early walks. For example, you have an early book such as a Quran, which was donated to a mosque, as a walk. That never stopped. People continue to do that sort of thing. So if you go, for example, to Al-Azhar, the most important Sunni institution of learning uh, in Egypt, and look at their library collection of manuscripts, and you see that people have been over the centuries donating books to various libraries as waqf, And then they were all, at a certain point, they were all compiled together into one sort of university library. Uh, as, and, the as, key as
0: thing, and the key thing there of donating the book for, as waqf well, is that I think all of the law schools, the Sunni law schools are in agreement that, that waqf is inalienable. It can't be taken back by anybody. So whether it's a book or whether it's land, the point is that no one can say, oh, I've enjoyed reading that book. I think I'll borrow that and not bring it back. You know, that's that's illegal and presumably immoral as well, isn't it? So it's, it's the issue that these are inalienable gifts, aren't they? They can't be taken back.
1: That's that's correct. It's a sort of walk in a sense carries a sense of suspension, uh, that the the ownership is kind of suspended. Some theologians or jurists might interpret this as kind of a gift to, to God, but generally it's held that the the property is held kind of in suspension. There's a long little debate that we probably don't want to go into about whether or not you can, under circumstances, revoke a walk, or what to do when a walk property is so badly damaged that it can no longer support its functions. Uh, can you sell parts of it? Uh, in order to buy replacements, even if that diminishes the value of the walk. But generally, yes, the, the idea is it's a permanent gift uh, and it's the revenues that will be spent, not the principal. Uh, and so most jurists, at least until the Ottoman period, didn't like the idea of giving a walk of money because walk, money would be spent. Um, the Ottomans changed this. They began to allow what were called ca- cash walks in which you could donate money, and the money actually lent out at a controlled rate of interest, which also was a departure from Islamic tradition. Generally, most Muslim jurists have always held that uh, loans interest are simply forbidden. This is usury, pure and simple. Uh, the Ottomans, however, took the view that uh, you could give out cash loans, a waqf could give out cash loans at a modest rate of interest. And this actually was important for providing small loans Uh, to poor and working class people, uh, and often particularly to women. Uh, The researchers show women were particularly often customers of these cash walks. So the functions of a walk changed over time uh, and indeed became, I think, more capacious. Uh, Beginning in the 11th century, it became very common to endow large institutions using walks, particularly by rulers and by members of of the ruling family and ruling class. So this meant donations of large amounts of land, including agricultural land, which was actually the most important source of taxation for most medieval states, uh, as well as real estate, urban real estate, to establish institutions such as uh, mosques, um, Sufi convents, hospitals were among the largest and most uh, well-endowed institutions in, in some cities. Uh, and a variety of other different kinds of institutions, sometimes in multifunctional um, complexes. So uh, you'll find a complex, particularly by the late Middle Ages, it's common for the same complex to have uh, a mosque, which is also a Sufi convent, also a place to teach Islamic law, also contains the uh, founder's tomb, uh, and may have other functions, including giving uh, food to the poor. And the term for this was Imara in Arabic, which in Turkish becomes Imaret, which in the Ottoman context also led to a very specific development, which was the term Imara, Imaret, originally meant these kind of larger complexes, and sometimes specifically the kitchen that would provide uh, food to the people who were employed in the complex. So if your complex employed teachers of law, students, Sufi sheikhs, their disciples, uh, a variety of officials who basically maintained the building, uh, a person to lead the prayers, um, someone to keep the library, a librarian often, uh, all these different functions. These people needed to be fed on a daily basis, and even better, needed to be fed well on the holidays. And what happened under the uh, the Ottomans is that the Emirate sometimes was spun off as, as a separate freestanding institution, what we might call a soup kitchen. Uh, and so you have these uh, soup kitchens also, which provide food to local people, particularly to the poor, uh, in important cities. So not only in places like Istanbul, but also places like uh, Jerusalem, for example, uh, Mecca and Medina. So this is indeed one of the most important forms of charity. I think it's the, by the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, the predominant form of giving in the, in, in the medieval Islamic world.
0: Well, when you mentioned the the Ottoman period, it made me think of of the Mughal uh, Empire as well, their contemporaries. Although historians generally think that waqf wasn't as richly developed in in Mughal India as it was under the Ottomans. Nonetheless, it's important to say that that, that waqf is was in a sense universal in, in to greater and lesser degrees throughout the Islamic world, and. And, and that made me think of uh, perhaps what's often said to be the most famous building in the world, which is the Taj Mahal. And the Taj Mahal was one of the, the richest of, of Mughal imperial endowments with uh, not just agricultural properties, but as you mentioned, a whole series of, of, of urban properties. Anyone who's visited the Taj Mahal might well have stayed in the area called Taj Ganj nowadays, which surrounds the Taj Mahal, full of tourist hotels and, and shops. But those, I'm not sure about the hotels, but those properties, the bathhouses that were there, the, the shops and markets were the waqf, they were the endowment that, were, that was funded to maintain the Taj Mahal, maintain the Quran readers that were there, maintain the mosque, but also the gardeners and guards that were for this most famous building in the world. But, but perhaps we'll think of some uh, less, uh, less famous and less well-known buildings or endowments as we stay in the the early margin or indeed in the medieval period as well and, and turn back to Middle Eastern cities like Cairo, Damascus or Istanbul as you mentioned which have become really teeming metropolises in the later medieval period. So how did waqf endowments and other institutional forms of charity respond to what was also the growing problem of urban poverty
1: in this period? So there were a number of different uh, foundations that were that were important, I think, for the, for the poor uh, in, in, in these uh, urban contexts. Uh, hospitals, although they were often uh, very large and well-endowed, were also very important for providing, particularly for poor people. Wealthy people generally got medical treatment at home. Right? Um, a, med- a wealthy person would not go stay in a hospital uh, if they could avoid it. Uh, even things like pharmaceuticals that were provided by the hospital were generally sent home to the patient if the person was someone of means. It was the poor who went and stayed in a hospital uh, because the hospital provided, well, good food, for one thing, in addition to medical assistance, in addition to things like uh, surgery, uh, it also provided simply three squares a day. And uh, the the, uh, access to food was, I think for many people, the most important sort of appeal of a hospital. They also generally contained uh, places for detaining people who are insane, um, insane asylums. Uh, and again, I think probably this would have been primarily for poor people who, work, who, were, who suffered from mental illness. Uh, wealthy people probably could arrange again to be, to be sort of treated or, or held at home. Uh, another important function was education. One of the distinctive uh, forms of charity of, to the 15th century onward, is the Maktab Sabil. So Maktab, or what's later called a Qutab, basically is a Quran school. And it's a school primarily for teaching uh, people to recite the Quran, but also to read and write and basic arithmetic. So something like a primary school. Uh, and although Maktabs and kuttabs could be held for anyone, there were specific Maktabs that were set up uh, specifically for poor boys. Uh, orphaned boys in particular, uh, but some more broadly poor as well. And so these boys would receive effectively a free education, which of course also was accompanied by food. Right? It was the idea that the poor perhaps can't even afford to eat enough to, to be able to concentrate on their studies. So the, these, these institutions would provide uh, food and, uh, and, and education to poor boys. And they often were located on a second floor or one floor up, if you like, uh, above a, a cistern, a sebile where water would be provided uh, for poor people uh, and for any passerby in in principle. So the combination of these two uh, in a single building, a single institution became very common. Um, Many of the larger institutions because they generated so much food often had leftovers and it was commonly the case that they would that the endowment deeds would say okay you, you can't preserve these at, at, uh, uh for, for the next day you have to give them out to the poor so you take them out basically to the front steps and you distribute it to the poor uh so for example there's a sufi uh convent uh hanukkah established north of cairo by one of the Mamluk sultans in the 14th century and this is specifically what happens with the, with the extra food and this is to some degree actually a continuation of what Ghazali says, which is that Hazali says that a person who is genuinely at the highest level of poverty has sort of given up material needs to the degree that they don't need to have their food for more than one day and one night. And so in a sense, the extras, the food that's beyond that has to be given away. And that's, that's what's, being, what's, what's being done here. So there are a number of ways in which uh, waqf could be used to provide these basic kind of services to poor people. Um, It's also very common for tombs to be uh, a site of charity. Um, When someone is buried, one way, uh, sort of one of the last ways in which you can uh, engage in an act of penitence, shall we say, is to give away food at the funeral to uh, surrounding people who are poor. It's very common for the funerals of wealthy people to be sites of distribution of large amounts of food to to the poor. so that, that's another significant sort of example. And then, of course, the state often had to deal with questions of, of uh, food shortages and famines, but that's not really through what that's a different kind of, of institution. So you've alluded there or hinted then
0: that the, the, the places, let's say, or the institutions through which so much of this charity is being delivered, whether hospitals or soup kitchens, as you mentioned, or indeed in some sense, public libraries or at least libraries for for students at, at given institutions. This was charity finding its expression through architecture as well. Now I've I suppose up the ante somewhat by mentioning the Taj Mahal but nonetheless the the places and periods you've been mentioning whether Ayyubid and especially Mamluk Cairo the Mamluks ruling 1250 through 1517 when the Ottomans turn up having already conquered Istanbul in 1453, then in 1517, they they turn up in, in Cairo as well, as well as having conquered Damascus around the same time. And the Ayyubid and, and Ottoman periods, of course, are, 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 are magnificent periods of, of, of Muslim architectural expression. So perhaps you can talk us through a little bit, perhaps with even a few examples of, of how did these Muslim acts of charity then, urban charity, I suppose, or perhaps even suburban or even rural charity
1: find expression
0: in architecture
1: if you go to any uh major city in the muslim world which goes back to say the, the middle ages or to the early modern period you know, when longer term settlements uh, the most important buildings that survive their historical buildings are usually buildings that had some kind of religious function or the basis of waqf. so Much of the domestic architecture has since been demolished and been replaced by modern apartment buildings. And this is partly a question of the expansion of cities and populations. It's also because often domestic architecture especially for poorer people was built with much less lasting materials. So in some places like Cairo, for example people built with monk bricks. But certainly if you saw, for example, a large mosque or a hospital or a large uh, uh, walk building usually those are built with stone, good quality stone they've also been repaired and kept up over the years. And this is partly, again, religious significance, but also the social functions which these buildings had and the fact that the waqf meant, uh, the existence of a waqf meant that they should be, at least in principle, uh, permanent institutions. And this is something which a series of governments have taken quite seriously. Um, One of the most remarkable things actually with the Mamluk period is that often when a prominent Mamluk died, the person, his property would be seized. Uh, and return to the state, because much of the property was derived, in fact, from serving the state. But waqf was a way of avoiding that. Waqf was a way of creating something that permanent, uh, both in terms of something that was important for saving your own soul, because that was ultimately, from the point of view of the donor, that was the function of establishing this kind of charitable endowment, that by performing these pious deeds that would last forever, that effectively, uh, or at least for you would, in that sense, uh, uh, wipe away some of the stain of your sins, uh, and this would be an important uh, uh, thing to be counted in your favor when judgment came. Uh, and that fact, plus the, the fact that each successive ruler and each successive uh, member of the ruling class who established an endowment wanted their, make sure that their endowment continued and they continued to receive the benefits and that their family continued to receive the benefits because often families members also benefited from locks uh, and were buried in walk tombs and so on, uh, each one was very zealous to make sure that in most cases their predecessors' endowments were also preserved and, and their conditions honored. So walk becomes a very permanent part of the of the, of, of, of the urban landscape. Um, so if you go, for example, today to Cairo, to Sherry which is a, a, a long uh, street that runs through the medieval city of Cairo, from what used to be the from one set of walls to the next. To, to, to the final, the other seven laws. And you see a whole series of buildings established uh, under the Fatimids in the 10th and 11th century, uh, then under the uh, Ayyubids who succeeded them and the Mamluks, the Ottomans, and, and so on, down to you know, down until the 20th century. So you see a whole series of, uh, of buildings uh, established by important rulers and other leading figures in a society. It's an element of history that has been preserved in a way that other aspects of the historical city have not been. So Walks played an important role, I think, both in the establishment of these large monumental buildings uh, and also in their preservation. Now, as the city began to sort of fill up, and space began to become much more uh, at a premium. He began to build uh, Walks uh, buildings that were smaller in terms of the, their footprint on the ground, but higher up than when they were taller. Uh, had, more, had higher stories, so this is something people, have, uh, architectural historians, have noticed that you begin to see perhaps buildings that aren't quite as long or occupying as much space, but which are, go higher, which 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 go higher up. And uh, if you stand, for example, in the Cairo Citadel overlooking uh, the medieval city, you see you know one building after another, almost all of which were established uh, uh, with waqf. Uh, among these medieval buildings.
0: So yes, so well, I've alluded then to 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 India, but I suppose I should also perhaps throw one or two other comparisons to to other sort of major regions as well as as well as as we've talked about in the the Arab Middle East and indeed in the the the, the, the Sunni realm. I mean, then Shi' law and indeed Shi' Islam has its 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 various uh, differences with regard to waqf and, and otherwise. But one of the major centres, I suppose, for um, she Waqf is the the great pilgrimage center of, of Mashhad the holy city now in Iran of Mashhad and some of the extraordinary buildings endowed there in the in the 15th century not least by Gohashad the the female ruler of the Timurid dynasty that is often seen as being in some ways the architectural apogee of sort of uh um, Afghan and Iranian, I suppose, as we'd say nowadays, architectural history. And those buildings now, kind of endowed by Gohashad, are still really the, the central part of the most important uh, Iranian uh, uh, pilgrimage center. And, and certainly one of the great Shi' centers then that have been, as you say, maintained. And I think that's a really important idea that, that you brought up, Adam, that there's a sort of a practical dimension of the maintenance of buildings that there's, there's simply the revenues as well as actually the the staff in a sense the families the overseers the mutawalis as they're often called at least in the the eastern islamic world who are sort of uh, given the duty over the centuries and the generations to to maintain the waqf and its distribution and it's what the money spent to go for but there's also i suppose a sort of a sense of religiously protected preservation of buildings that that you shouldn't demolish these buildings in the same ways you might for you know your your kind of a modernization or renewal project which so many sultans and so on wanted to constantly do over cities they they conquered of building new things but things did change a great deal particularly in the the modern period whether the 19th 20th or indeed the early 21st century when there were many debates among or in the, the the traditional Muslim scholarly groups, or indeed among the kind of the new Muslim reformists who didn't come from those traditional backgrounds and educations of the of the kind of ulama education in uh, in madrasa traditional schools and 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 and, and their uh, sort of intellectual disciplines. So let me ask you then: How did the laws, institutions, practices, and practicalities of Islamic charity? Whether the
1: waqf or otherwise change in the modern period? I think one can say that there are two major changes that, that took place. Uh, the first is that many of the waqfs ultimately came to be controlled by states directly, the form of the construction of, for example, in some place like Egypt or Turkey, you have a ministry of al a ministry of waqf. And these, uh, so the this was always the case that states were involved in administration of endowments, But the idea that the ulama had some kind of religious scholars, had some kind of autonomy in controlling these institutions, I think that's largely over. And in many societies, indeed, the religious scholars themselves are now civil servants, effectively. Uh, So in many cases now, uh, control over religion, control over religious expression uh, is is a state matter. Uh, and so, control. So, mosques became a much more of a state-oriented institution, state-organized and administered institution. Uh, in some cases, also because of the historical significance. So, if you look again, Egypt is the case I know best. Uh, on the one hand, the people who uh, lead the prayers, give the sermons, and so on in uh, in these religious institutions are employees of the state, which wants to be very careful about the kind of religious messages that go out, especially their political content. On the other hand, the buildings themselves are historical monuments, and so the Ministry of Antiquities has a fundamental interest in making sure that they're preserved according to international standards, uh, that to- the access that tourists get to these institutions often uh, is-, is controlled and, and is uh, regulated. So the-, the involvement of the state, I think in these institutions has grown much greater. What has largely happened is that, WACF, as a kind of institution or an economic institution uh, has been regarded, especially since the 19th century, as in some ways reactionary or not modern. Uh, Beginning in the middle of the 19th century, we see a shift really towards private property under the influence partly of of European capitalism, uh, but also I think for domestic reasons. And so the idea uh, that you would donate some property permanently to a certain charitable purpose comes to be seen, especially landed property, comes to be seen as economically inefficient. Western sources, which then are adopted by many Muslim uh, sort of reformists, talk about mortmain, the idea is sort of a sort of dead hand. Uh, and I think, although most modern scholars now think that this was unfair, that the evidence actually is the people who managed pre-modern walks were actually quite economically sophisticated. And at least in many cases, they knew how to get the most out of their property. Uh, and how to, and how to maximize income this is not the view that was that was that prevailed in the late 19th early 20th century and so in many countries walk was either forbidden or severely limited uh, and and, and so some, often some, the walks were seized by the state so the result is that walks became much less influential on the way in the way in which people gave charity so that uh, although walk has come and gone for example in in modern egypt you can't really establish a walk, a walk in the same way that you could in in the in the Middle Ages or early modern period. It just isn't legally, it isn't possible. Although walks still exists, uh, and in the middle of, of the 20th century, in fact, the government decided to try to dissolve these uh, these family walks and simply assign them as property to different beneficiaries. So this really did significant damage to the institution. There are other countries where have been more friendly towards walks, at least at least in principle. Uh, in Turkey, for example, there are many foundations which call themselves walks. I'm not sure to what degree they really are using you know, Islamic law, pre-modern Islamic law as a foundation for that. But as part of the sort of shift towards greater Islamization of the public space and sphere in, in Turkey, uh, a lot of institutions will call, them, will call themselves religious walks. So at least the idea of walk is still very much al- alive in Turkey. But generally speaking, I don't think walk plays the same role. That that it once that it that it once did, zakat is still very significant because it's it's basically a personal obligation. In principle, every believer, every believer, at least every adult believer who has the the funds to to to, to pay, uh, but waqf no longer plays the role that it that it once did. At least not a, as a as a private institution.
0: And so the sense I'm 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 getting from you then is that with with waqf at least then with these very substantial often the the um, prime uh, parts of urban real estate, the centre, what were the historical cities and therefore the sort of the centres, the downtowns of the, the major cities of the Islamic order, particularly the the the, the, the Middle East, and indeed some of the, the wealthiest and, and, and most productive agricultural land, parts along the Nile, etc. These have been given in Waqf over the centuries, and what we're seeing over the course of the The 20th century then, as you mentioned then, is the role of the state and effectively the nationalization of of so many of these lands they're claiming by the state. You mentioned Turkey more recently, but, but I think it was actually, as you know well, that it was in 1926, what was then the perhaps the most stridently secular uh, country at any point in the Islamic world, perhaps apart from Albania, I suppose, um, was it, were actually led the way then in, in, in nationalising Wakfland. And this continued in the 20th century. And I think what's also very, very uh, interesting about what you mentioned, the, the range of examples you give, is that actually this role of the state in, in claiming, abolishing, in seizing, nationalising whack formally charitable properties then is the same in avowedly secular states such as Egypt today sort of an Arab nationalist state formally or I mean not not the same but nonetheless it it has happened as well as in actually Islamic states where you might think well well that's you know kind of a perhaps logically the case then where the state is itself a, a religious actor but as we move towards the present day then in Perhaps I can ask you, uh, how or indeed what is the legacy then in today's world of these varied charitable traditions, whether Waqfor indeed, as you mentioned, the role of voluntary charity, the Quranic charity of zakah, which we began with, what's their
1: legacy in today's world? Well, I think that charity is still understood by all Muslims as a fundamental value, uh, that zakah is still regarded as individual obligation, uh, on On every adult Muslim who is capable, capable of paying, um, and whether that means giving one's money to the poor, whether it means giving some money perhaps to the local mosque, say you're, uh, for example, I, I, I think people in, in the United States, Muslims in the United States, often give zakat to their to their local mosque, either you to distribute it to the poor or for various functions and development of of of, of the mosque. Uh, so I think that that charity in that sense is still very much part of the. Uh, people's sense of community responsibility. Uh, I I think that uh, the sort of state functions that what might have had in a pre-modern state now are fulfilled by a ministry of social affairs or some other institution for the most part. Um, I I would have to disagree with you somewhat about Egypt being a secular state. Egypt is, Egypt forbids any kind of, the constitution forbids any discrimination based on religion. However, it also says that it's an Islamic state. And so the Azhar and all the people who are employed as religious functionaries, uh, plead the prayers, give the sermons, etc., are all are all civil servants, which they're not in the Coptic Church, which is the other major religion that you find in Egypt. So it's a it's a mix, and I think this is this is true to some degree in many uh, modern Muslim states. There's a combination between a, a secular constitution with an Islamic I- identity, uh, but for the most part, I would say that. Uh, charity is still very much alive but largely it's it's seen as a private value uh, and that the the public role that the state plays is more that's that looks a bit more secular that looks a bit more uh like uh, the social functions that any modern state has—a ministry of education should, in principle, provide for education for everybody, at least everyone who is not able to afford private education. Um, that uh, these other kind of functions that were uh, that were they were seen to often by state or by ruler-founded endowments are now matters for the state as a bureaucratic institution. Where charity has been more successful and more long-lasting is where it represents, I think, the um, the religious motives of the individual. Uh, and the desires for indiv- desire of individuals to, well, to please God and also to serve their communities uh, in, in a variety of different ways.
0: And in that way, perhaps one might even argue that the history of zakah of charity has perhaps come full circle in Islamic history from its earlier ethical and private notion of the purification of the individual soul through these uh, chosen acts of charity through the rising and perhaps waning of the the, the role of the state, at least with Zakar as well as with Waqf. Professor Adam Sabra, thank you so much for talking to us in
1: Aqba's chamber. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to join you.